The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space celebrating Trinity College Dublin. To those who are joining us on Zoom, welcome to our virtual lecture theatre uh, and those on Facebook. Uh, we're absolutely delighted uh, that uh, you can join us through our live stream. Uh, my name is Jane Olmeyer. I am the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities. It's a very special year for us because we're celebrating our 10th anniversary. And I think it's an anniversary that will live with us for a very long time. Um, we do three things in the Trinity Longroom Hub. The first thing we do is promote the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity. The second thing we do is drive innovative approaches to research. And particularly, we promote interdisciplinarity. In other words, we really want uh, uh, to encourage disciplines to have conversations with each other because when the disciplines collide, the magic happens. And I think we're going to have a fabulous example of that here this evening. The third thing that we do in the Trinity Longroom Hub is we promote public humanities. And again, I hope uh, this evening is an excellent example uh, of this. Our Behind the Headlines discussion series, uh, really we aim to contribute to understanding of current issues in the media. We want to deepen understanding and combat simplification and polarization. So a big thank you to everybody who makes public humanities uh, in the hub uh, happen, to Terry Neal. And I'm also extremely grateful to Stephen Vernon and the John Pollard Foundation who support uh, Behind the Headlines. As the world continues to grapple with the crisis created by COVID-19, our distinguished panel will this evening look at climate change and pandemics. By way of introduction, I want to quote from Fintan O'Toole's piece in Saturday's Irish Times. Most of us can't see the coronavirus, but we can see its effects. Unnervingly, we can see how from the point of view of planet Earth, it makes things better. For us human beings, it is devastating, emotionally, socially, and economically. But for the planet, it is a holiday for, from our otherwise relentless foulness. COVID-19 has changed how we live. Will it force us to rethink climate change? This is the question we are asking you tonight in our poll. It should appear now on your screen and we would really appreciate it if you wouldn't mind answering it. It'll appear for anybody who's in Zoom, sadly on Facebook, uh, 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 you won't see it. But the question is, has uh, the COVID-19 pandemic made you rethink the response needed for climate change? So you can either say yes, no, or unsure. We'll return to our poll uh, at the end of our uh, presentations. Tonight, um, as per our last discussion on plagues and pandemics, we're doing it virtually. We're not physically in Trinity. 
We're all joining you from home. I'm here in Northwest Donegal where the Wi-Fi can be highly problematic. So fingers crossed tonight, we don't have any technical issues. Uh, our fellow panelists are joining us from elsewhere in Ireland. Um, and one is coming all the way from the United States. Uh, Catherine's uh, joining us from, from Texas. Uh, so again, uh, uh, fingers crossed that the technology uh, behaves itself tonight. And if things go wrong, we'll keep on going. So nobody should worry about it anyway. Uh, the format though is as if we were in the Edmund Burke in Dublin. Uh, each speaker will uh, talk for nine minutes um, and then we'll open it up to the floor for questions and then a, a discussion. We invite you to submit your questions uh, through the Q&A function on your screen and we'll read them out at the end. Please, when you ask a question, say something about yourself. Tell us very briefly who you are and where, you're, uh, uh, where you are in the world. Those listening on Facebook can also write a question in the comments section and we'll monitor these and try and take as many questions as time allows. Uh, social media, we would love uh, everybody to tweet tonight uh, using the handle at TLR Hub, TLR Hub and the hashtag Hub Matters. Okay, to our fabulous panelists, I'm going to introduce our panelists are, uh, in the order in which they'll speak. So I'd like to start with Catherine Hayhoe, uh, who is an atmospheric scientist and director of climate science of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She is a remarkable communicator who has been named to a number of lists, including the Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and Fortune Magazine's World's Greatest Leaders. She has served as the lead author on the second, third and fourth national climate assessments. Now, Catherine actually was in Dublin very recently and she was due to speak in Trinity on the 12th of March which was of course the day that we learned uh, about the lockdown. So she came all the way to Ireland and then went all the way back to the United States. So Catherine, it really is a pleasure to have you here with us this evening for some unfinished business. Our second speaker tonight is Michael Cronin. Uh, Michael is the Professor of French at Trinity and Director of the Trinity Centre for Literary and Cultural Translation. Uh, Michael's a hugely uh, a distinguished scholar and is the author of Eco Translation, Translation and Ecology in the Age of the Anthropocene. Uh, that was 2017. And then another book, uh, most recently, Irish uh, and Ecology. So Michael, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Our third speaker is uh, Jane Stout. She's Professor of uh, uh, Botany um, in uh, Trinity and has the chair and, and is chair of the Natural Capital, of Natural Capital Ireland, sorry Jane. Um, she uh, explores the relationships between plants, animals and people and focuses on pollination, ecology, exploring how interactions shape ecological processes at individual community and ecosystem scales. Jane is also our bee lady. Um, we all know and love Jane's work uh, with bees and uh, uh, it's great that you could be uh, with us this evening, Jane. Our final uh, speaker this evening is Dara McCullough. Dara is a farmer, a journalist and a broadcaster. He has presented RTE's flagship farming programme, Ear to the Ground, for 17 years and writes a weekly column in the Irish Independent. He manages 120 uh, hectare uh, uh, mixed farm in County Meath, uh, where he employs up to 40 staff and normally 
and I say normally, supplies uh, flowers and bulbs to supermarkets and export markets around the world. Obviously, extraordinarily challenging times, uh, Dara, and we'll come back to that uh, uh, with your uh, uh, presentation. But without further ado, uh, I'd like to turn to Catherine Hayhoe, uh, who will kick off um, our uh, proceedings this evening. Catherine, over to you. Thank you, Jane. I was also reflecting on what the world looked like four weeks ago. So just four weeks ago today, I was in Galway. I was giving a lecture on how we have tough conversations about climate change at NUIG. I was preparing to head over to Trinity where you were going to be hosting this event on Thursday evening. And then within just a few days, the world changed. Today, universities are shuttered, bars are closed, the St. Patrick's Day celebrations were all canceled. When we turn on the news, we hear about suffering around the world about physical suffering, about economic suffering, about all of the suffering that this pandemic brings with it. So many people might be wondering, why are we having a conversation about climate change when all we can think about is our current pandemic? There's a few reasons, I think, and I look forward to hearing the, the reasons others share as well. But it's because there are connections. There are intimate connections between the pandemic, our response, and the risks and solutions to a changing climate. So for example, we hear in the news that our carbon emissions have dropped as a result. And some may feel, well, isn't that good news for climate change? But oil prices have also dropped and the industrial slowdown has affected renewable energy technology too. We also hear that air pollution has dropped in many urban centers around the world. But a brand new study that just came out today from Harvard University found that actually air pollution that we've already been exposed to is significantly increasing our illness and death rates associated with the pandemic. What we have learned, I feel, is this, that we all live in an interconnected world. The pandemic has showed us that no matter where we live, no matter what language we speak, no matter who we are, Today, we are all living the same life. We are practicing physical distancing. We are trying to connect socially with our friends and family and loved ones and colleagues in more and more creative ways. And more than ever, we recognize that we are all part of this same world together. And that's exactly how climate change affects us too. When it comes to a climate change, the biggest myth that the largest number of us believe in is not the myth we hear about so frequently in the news, the idea that the science is somehow just a matter of opinion. No, it's what we call psychological distance. It's the myth that it doesn't matter to me. It only matters to future generations or to people who live far away or to things that aren't important to me. But think back four weeks, we were feeling the same way about coronavirus. It only matters maybe to people in the future, but not to us today. It matters to people who live over here, but not people right now. It might matter to people who care about certain things, but not what I care about. Today, we know that the pandemic does matter to each one of us and climate change matters too. It is here and it is now. When I was in Ireland, uh, the country had just received the wettest February on record. 16 of the 25 long-term weather stations around Ireland recorded the wettest February ever. 
we see that heavy rainfall is already becoming more frequent and more intense across Ireland. Unfortunately, the flip side is we see that as it gets warmer, we have stronger and more frequent heat waves in the summer and more frequent and stronger droughts as well. And then of course there's sea level rise, which is threatening coastal cities. And most of the major cities in Ireland are coastal. With climate change, it's as if we are where we were at with the pandemic four weeks ago. Climate change, of course, operates over a much longer scale, which means we still have time to act to avoid the worst. Not all, but the worst of the impacts. But swift action is needed. And even though it plays out over years to decades, rather than hours to days as we see with the pandemic, the risk posed by climate change is just as great, if not much greater. It is not about preserving our planet. The planet will still orbit the sun long after we're gone. It is about preserving the health and the welfare of every living thing on this planet, including ourselves. And that brings me to the second biggest myth we believe. The first, that it doesn't matter to me. And the second is that we can't fix it or that the only solutions to fix it are worse than the impacts that the cure is worse than the disease. So for example, in Ireland, we focus on, well, how will farmers cope with the need to reduce methane emissions from cows? But at the same time, farmers are suffering tremendous losses from floods and rain that keep them from getting into their fields to extreme droughts in the summer that lead to devastation and crop losses. Interestingly, a survey just last year of the whole EU, every country in the EU showed that Ireland was in the bottom third of all countries on the awareness of the need to reduce emissions. But here's the interesting thing. Ireland was consistently in the top three, one, two, three of countries in the whole EU when they were asked, are you willing to make changes? And are you willing to do more? So the reality is, is that there are solutions from feeding cows seaweed and probiotics to improve their digestion and decrease their methane emissions, to looking forward into the future and preparing for heavier rains, stronger droughts. With climate change, we are rapidly nearing the point that we were at when we took decisive action on the pandemic. But with climate change, by the time disaster hits, it is too late. That is why we need to act now. And this is the final lesson that I believe the coronavirus pandemic has taught us. That when it all comes down to it, what matters to every single one of us is the same, no matter who we are and where we live. It is the health and the safety of our family, our loved ones, our friends, our community, the people and places we care about. That's what the pandemic puts at risk and that is exactly what climate change puts at risk as well. Thank you very, very much, uh, uh, Catherine. Uh, Michael. Uh, change, I'm thinking about a number of, of arguments. Um, but then what occurred to me 
uh, when the, the pandemic uh, suddenly turned up in, in the way that it did was, you know, what was the connection? What was the kind of link between these uh, two uh, events? And one link that stood out for me more than anything else, if you like, was the relationship uh, between the human and the non-human. Um, because one of the things about uh, COVID-19 is that COVID-19 is the best known organism on the planet. Uh, it's not Michael Cronin, uh, it's not Jane Ulmer, it's not Jane Stout, uh, it's not Boris Johnson, it's Donald Trump. The most important, uh, most widely known organism on the planet um, is uh, COVID-19. Uh, so one of the things that, if you like, this is kind of forced into our vision is uh, the material, the agency, the material agency of the, the non-human. Uh, in other words, the extent to which the non-human is this uh, increasing overwhelming presence in, in our lives. One of the things, of course, that has happened as a result, uh, a mixture of kind of science and Christianity, Christianity with the notion that we're given kind of dominion uh, over all of the animals, um, that humans had a soul, uh, animals and natural world uh, didn't, um, or in the Cartesian uh, view that, uh, that humans were the masters and possessors of nature, and what the science did was it became the kind of the instant of that domination. Kind of the convergence of these two things meant um, that the, uh, the human was put very much at the center of the uh, the universe. Uh, I work in an area that is described as the humanities. It's not described as the non-humanities. Uh, so one of the things I think uh, that's happening with COVID-19 is that it's very much uh, bringing uh, the non-human back into to view. The non-human, uh, the agency of non-human, which is so important in climate change, but it's also something that's hugely important, obviously, in the case of the pandemic. Uh, I think there are kind of three consequences uh, of this. One is what I'm going to call the uh, looking in, uh, the other is looking out, uh, and the third is, is looking up. So looking in, if we look at the history of the 19th and the 20th century, they were very much uh, what I would call the revolutions of externalization. This was basically, you built uh, the railways, uh, you constructed the airplanes, you built the airports, you built the bridges. The whole thing was how did you globalize commerce? How did you globalize trade? How do you globalize the exchange of, of human beings? Uh, how do you stretch, bring, if you like, places that are very distant, closer and closer uh, together? So, all of our ingenuity, all of our investment, uh, all of our thinking was very much focused uh, on that. The revolutionary challenge, it seems to me, of the 21st century, and we can see this immediately with the consequences of COVID-19, is what I would call the revolution of internalization. In other words, how do we make our local environments, the environments that surround us, uh, environments that are sustainable, uh, environments that are resilient, uh, environments and carry us uh, into the, the future. And how do we, in those environments, if you like, negotiate uh, the relationship with the human and the non-human? So the kind of resources, the kind of intelligence and ingenuity that has driven the revolution of, of externalization for two centuries is now uh, the kind of thing we're going to have to think about uh, in uh, our uh, century. Um, so this is very much what I would call the, the looking in. And the looking out is to do with the role of, of culture. I often think to kind of reformulate that famous kind of catchphrase uh, from the Clinton era, it's the economy stupid. I often think that what I want to say, it's culture uh, stupid. Uh, and what I mean by this is that one of the things, one of the extraordinary kind of resources that humans have uh, in all kinds of different cultures in terms of understanding 
where they stand in the world, how they kind of get themselves away from forms of, of human exceptionalism, kind of human hubris, human excessive pride. Um, are the stories they tell, uh, the languages uh, they use, uh, the songs uh, that they sing. If we think of kind of one of the founding myths uh, of the island uh, of Ireland, uh, where we have one of our legendary ancestors, uh, Argin Glungal, who says, you know, I am the wind on the sea, I am the wave of the sea, I am the eagle of the rock, I'm the flash uh, from the sun. All of those are non-human metaphors to describe these Irish song lines that kind of sing uh, the Irish landscape uh, into being. And of course, one of the things that, that's very striking about uh, early Irish Christianity is the extent to which there's this profound engagement with the natural world. The natural world has material agency. It is an active dynamic presence uh, in the lives uh, of the people who write about it and describe it. You see this beautifully in the collection called the Early Irish Lyrics from uh, Gerald Murphy. Colin Bannists, who's often seen as the founder of the European idea, the first person to use the word, the phrase, we Europeans, uh, in, a, in a letter, um, it's famously reported that he had this exceptional kind of relationship uh, with the non-human to the extent that everywhere he went, he was surrounded uh, and followed by a flock of, of wild geese, um, which is probably a good description, the best one I can think of, uh, of political advisors uh, in the contemporary era. But what it does show uh, is the, that kind of relationship uh, that existed uh, in uh, Irish culture between uh, these two parts of our, our, our world. One of the points that Robert McFarlane, the British nature writer makes, is that what begins with aesthetics ends in ethics. In other words, that the more we pay attention to something, uh, the less likely we are to care about it. Um, so the more we pay attention to in our language, in our song, in our stories, uh, to the world uh, around us and the things that inhabit us, um, then you begin to, if you like, uh, see that world differently, you see it anew, and you begin to see it as something uh, valuable. And one of the extraordinary things, if we think of uh, our writers like Seamus Heaney, uh, Moya Cannon, uh, Noon Lee Connell, uh, the late great uh, Tim Robinson, uh, what they do when they talk about the landscape uh, is that they begin with aesthetics, but they always end in ethics. They always, it's always a kind of a sums, if you like, uh, to care about the landscapes uh, that we inhabit, uh, the world uh, of which we are uh, a part. So this is very much for me, the kind of uh, the looking out that's involved uh, through cultural mediation of the, the world. And finally, there's what I would call uh, the looking, uh, the looking up. Uh, Timothy Morton, in a recent book called Being Ecological, says, at present, the ways in which we talk to ourselves about ecology are stuck in the horror mode, disgust, shame, and guilt. Right? In other words, uh, one of the most uh, disabling, one of the most crippling ways we have uh, of talking uh, about ecology is using the language of, of, of guilt. Uh, and there's nothing, if you like, uh, more disabling, more paralyzing uh, than guilt. So it seems to me that one of the things, uh, by looking more attentively to the world, by the re-enchantment of the world uh, through cultural observation, cultural attentiveness, um, is that we begin to uh, invent new pleasures rather than spend our times being seen as kind of policing uh, pleasures that people have in their everyday uh, lives. And one of the things, of course, that this does is that it, it famously, this kind of looking up 
that comes from the looking in and the looking out uh, is that we begin to uh, rediscover the extraordinary uh, pleasures uh, of our uh, everyday life. The world that surrounds us, that COVID in all of our confinement, if you like, has uh, in a curious way uh, made us um, measure even more intensely uh, the, the value uh, of and, and how it's important to our sense uh, of a shared and collective uh, future. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, again, very powerful uh, uh, words from you. Can we turn now, please, uh, Jane, over to you. Okay, thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, I want to talk to you this evening about nature. Um, and nature isn't a luxury, it is our life support system. It's fascinating, it's wondrous, and it provides us with sustenance, with shelter, with protection against the elements, protection against natural hazards. Nature isn't just a nice to have, it's a must have every day. And not just in the good times, but in times of crisis like now as well. So I'm an ecologist and this means that I study and try to understand the complexity of nature. So the interactions between organisms and between organisms and the physical environment that they live in and how organisms and their interactions respond to big changes, global changes and how that ultimately affects us, uh, our own health and well-being. And, and the interactions that we see in nature aren't, aren't always positive from a, from a human viewpoint. It was Tennyson in 1850 who first talked about nature red in tooth and claw, referring to the apparent violence, ruthlessness and tragedy that's common in interactions among organisms in nature. And as an ecologist, I learned back in, in my undergraduate days that the populations of organisms, whether they be plants, animals, from the biggest mammals to the smallest insects, are naturally regulated. Populations don't just keep growing more and more with more and more individuals. They hit a ceiling where they're limited by resources like space or food or by predators or by disease. And we learned that disease is part of nature. And as an ecologist, I also appreciate that diversity in nature makes ecosystems resilient in the face of disturbance. And this is equally true for humanity. Diversity in nature enables us as a species to cope with perturbation and change. And this includes the extreme climate events like fires, floods, droughts, and like disease. Diversity of nature means that we can bounce back. So, for example, research has shown that high biodiversity reduces the risk of animal vector diseases in human populations. For example, in uh, mosquito and tick-borne diseases, where there's a high diversity of wild animals, wild vertebrates in, in a particular area, the mosquitoes and the ticks feed on them instead of on us, and they feed on this diversity of hosts, most of which are actually poor reservoirs for the pathogens, and this results in lower infection rates uh, in humans. So diversity makes us less likely to be infected. But we can't take nature for granted. Nature is in trouble, and when it's in trouble, so are we. This time last year, a landmark report on nature was published. It was a global assessment of biodiversity, equivalent to the IPCC reports for climate, and it made for pretty depressing reading. Three quarters of Earth's land surface and two thirds of the marine significantly altered by human activity, habitats destroyed and degraded, and a million species at risk of extinction. And the report used words like alarming and crisis, and scientists don't often use these kind of words, but these words were used to try and communicate to the world that this really is a big deal, and to get people to realize that we don't just have a climate crisis, but we have a biodiversity crisis too, 
And the two aren't only linked with each other, but they're both linked with humanity's health and well-being. And people are starting to get it. The World Economic Forum this year recognised that climate change and biodiversity loss are some of the biggest risks with the greatest potential impacts on world economies. And they also recognised infectious disease as a top 10 risk. And the increasing frequency of disease outbreaks is linked with both climate change and biodiversity loss. Even though other things have contributed to the rise in, in disease outbreaks like uh, global travel, trade, high density urban livings, living, the links to climate change and biodiversity and, and disease outbreaks are the most striking. So climate change altered and, and accelerated transmission patterns of diseases like Zika and malaria cause displacement of humans and the movement of large groups of people to new areas means that they're more vulnerable to disease. And the destruction of nature, deforestation, removal of habitat has brought humans and wild animals into closer contact. And that's when zoonotic diseases get into humans. So zoonotic diseases are those that can be transmitted from other animals into humans or those that normally exist in other animals but can infect humans like this novel coronavirus. So as deforestation has increased over the past 20 years, we've seen increases in diseases like Ebola and Zika. So when natural habitats are destroyed or when particular species are traded and handled by people, the risk for disease spread from wild animals to humans increases and these novel diseases appear in humans. And the bottom line is, is that if we continue to destroy nature, we destroy our life support system and our ability to cope with what nature throws back at us. So what can we do and what can we learn from the COVID pandemic? Um, as part of the global assessment of biodiversity that I mentioned published this time last year, a range of policy scenarios were tested um, to address the negative trends in nature. But the report concluded that these negative trends will all continue to 2050 under all of the policy scenarios, except a scenario of transformative change. And the report concluded that the world needs transformative change to address both biodiversity and climate crises. And this transformative change includes stronger international co cooperation, uh, correcting perverse incentive structures like incentivizing destruction of nature or, or extraction of fossil fuel for profit, applying more holistic approaches to decision making, so not making decisions, blinkered decisions in silos, and strengthening implementation of laws and policies for improved human health and well-being. So this is what transformative change looks like. And you could say that this pandemic has created transformative change, unplanned, but transformative all the same. And this year, 2020, was supposed to be a super year for nature and biodiversity, with global conventions for climate and biodiversity making the targets that will lead us into the coming decades and centuries. And the decisions that we make now about climate and biodiversity could potentially affect the future of humanity we are at the point beyond which we won't be able to make the necessary changes. But then at the start of 2020, the new coronavirus appeared in China. And since then, we've all become painfully aware of how humanity is not immune to nature. So what has the current pandemic taught us? I think, firstly, it's shown us that society can change. And the way that we live and work can change. People don't have to be traveling all the time. There's more remote working. There's more connection with nature in our free time. But it's also shown us that we don't have the infrastructure to cope when we want to use or enjoy nature. Um, we've all seen national parks and urban green spaces quickly becoming overcrowded. 
So we need investment in nature, both for the sake of nature and what it's giving to us and for ourselves and our own physical and, and mental well-being. Secondly, I think it's shown us that governments can implement socially unpopular policies in the interest of public good and, and to the detriment of the economy. I mean, the speed at which everything has changed to protect human health has been remarkable. It's shown that we can respond to a crisis when we need to. Um, and climate change and biodiversity loss are global crises that are also threatening human health. We know they're happening and they also need urgent action. And we haven't seen this urgent action happen yet. And perhaps this is because it's a case with the current closures and social restrictions that we're all looking towards a time when it's over, when we can go back to normal. Whereas with biodiversity loss and climate change, we actually need to make long term changes. And the idea of long term changes is more overwhelming to us. But after this pandemic is over, we will have to rebuild ourselves as a species, our societies, our economy. And we have the opportunity to do that in a new way where nature and the benefits that it provides for humanity aren't ignored, where fossil fuels are left in the ground so we have a chance to respond to the climate crisis while we still can. We need to change our behaviour to tackle the biodiversity and climate crisis to ensure that food, resources, employment and health are all provided in a sustainable way. So finally, th this pandemic may actually help us see what we need to do. We have the ability to respond to a crisis. We've seen incredible sacrifices made by many to save human lives. We've seen families, communities and societies coming together. Let's build on that strength for a better future for nature and for people. Thank you very, very much, Jane. Last but not least, Dara, uh, over to you. Good evening, everybody. Uh, and I'm delighted to uh, join this event. Um, I must admit that uh, this evening was the first evening I really had a chance to sit down and think about uh, COVID-19 and what it means in terms of climate change, because uh, for the last week, we've basically been in a kind of a maelstrom here on the farm at home, last two weeks, really. Uh, two weeks ago, the lockdown began in earnest and we were in the midst of our main harvest on the farm at home, which is daffodil harvesting. And uh, all of a sudden, a lot of my workforce decided that they may need to go back home in a hurry uh, because I depend entirely on Romanians to pick daffodils because uh, no Irish people, even in the midst of the last recession, ever volunteered to pick daffodils in my fields. Um, I suppose that's just one little uh, indication of what a globalised society we live in now. So half of my workforce was threatening to leave and half of my markets were threatening to evaporate. So again, my daffodils uh, twice a week are loaded onto uh, trucks and they head to Holland from where they head to Poland. They head basically all over Europe and indeed all over the world. And the first I knew that there was a serious problem, I, you know, I was facing a potential loss of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of euro, because remember, this, the first three months of the year is the crucial harvest time for my farm, um, was when I saw the news clip with 20 million euros of flowers being dumped daily in Holland on the Dutch flower market. So literally overnight, buyers were cancelling contracts and it looked like I could be in dire straits. Happily, 
it hasn't turned out that way. Uh, I got the last of my flowers pretty much away. We were left with some and I, in a moment of either inspiration or madness, about a week ago decided to post online that uh, I would deliver bouquets of flowers anywhere in the country for 20 euros to try and get rid of all these lovely tulips and other flowers that I come in in my tunnels because of course mother nature was getting out of her bed and getting into gear and you can't turn off the tap even despite what COVID-19 might be doing. For the next, ever since basically, the phone has not stopped binging and dinging and ringing with tweets and messages and emails, which is great. We got a huge response, but I was only after posting that I realized, hang on a second, I've never taken a credit card payment across the phone. I don't know how to do electronic payments. I don't have a website. I don't have a web shop. Oh my God, how do we make this work? So every morning since I've been up at four or 4.30 and worked until about now every night until I fall into bed and get up and do it again the next morning in an effort to try and re-engineer the business to try and cope with this new norm. So all my local flower outlets had evaporated and I tried to reinvent the business. And I think, you know, it's been an incredibly stressful period. I had to try and figure out Stripe payments and web design and CSV files and all this stuff that farmers don't need to know about 99.9% of the time. Uh, we're getting there, but I, it kind of brought home to me that a lot of people talk about, well, you know, farmers, why don't they try this or why don't they, you know, change what they've always been doing and, you know, try a new way. It's not very simple, it's not easy, and I would consider myself reasonably IT literate, reasonably savvy on social media, reasonably kind of plugged into what the consumer wants. Uh, most farmers don't have the luxury of swanning around the country like I do, interviewing other farmers and seeing how other, how other businesses work. So I think it would be a huge ask for most farmers to do what we've done in the last week. That's how it the micro how COVID-19 impacted on my farm I think COVID-19 in a kind of ironic twist a lot of farms are the most normal places on the planet right now because they're doing what they've always done they're planting crops after six months of incessant rain so suddenly the fields are humming with tractors and activity uh, cows still are calving cows still need to be milked. So farmers are basically continuing on with the same routines that they've always done while the rest of the country and the rest of the economy goes into hibernation, all but the essential services. But that doesn't mean that farmers aren't very anxious about this whole period. So they're obviously anxious about their own health and their families, but they're also anxious about their markets. And again, I come back to that interconnectedness of the global world that we now live in. So. Uh, you know, my staff were threatening to evaporate overnight. Thankfully, they didn't. But then I get a call from my neighbor, who's a strawberry farmer, saying, listen, will you make sure that you send your staff up the road to me? Because all the Polish guys that I normally rely on can't get flights over to pick the crop. And that's happening, playing out all over the world, actually, now that the migrant labor that harvests all the food that we consume and that 99.9% .9 of the people watching this and listening into this have never touched. 99% of the labor 
can't get to where the food needs to be harvested now or won't get to it. Um, that's the, the supply. The demand has also fallen off a cliff and kind of gone all weird. So supermarkets are selling maybe two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times what they normally sell and the service sector has collapsed. So food chains and supply chains are all in a heap. There's lots of boats parked outside ports in China waiting to get in. They're waiting to offload. They can't get back across the world to reload until they offload. That's why the dairy industry here is very nervous that their stores are filling up and they can't uh, uh, empty those stores to get the product to the markets that they rely on. And bear in mind that 90% of the food produced in Ireland is exported off these shores. 90% of all the litres of milk, all the kilos of beef, all the pork, all the lamb goes outside of Ireland. So if we can't shift it, we're, we have a major problem. So. Irish farmers are nervous, uh, the prices are coming down, they don't know what is ahead of them, but they have to keep on getting up every morning and keep milking the cows and keep feeding their stock because they can't do anything else. What does COVID-19 mean for Irish agriculture or international agriculture? I'm not sure that it, it, it's going to change a lot. Um, in terms of climate change. What I've been amazed by is how resilient Donald Trump's ratings have been throughout this whole crisis. He's ignored all the advice, and yet he's still riding high in the polls. Uh, so if people are still willing to believe what Donald Trump says now, I don't think they're gonna change their minds about what he says about climate change. So I think you've got that whole cohort of the Earth's population who are going to go on blithely regardless and uh, they're just waiting to get back to normal, right? Uh, I think in Ireland, uh, most farmers can't do anything that they're not already doing in terms of uh, coping with this current crisis, but I think there's a lot happening behind the scenes in terms of what they're trying to do to prepare for a climate crisis. And I'm one of those crazy optimists that thinks that Irish agriculture can be carbon neutral. I mean, that is next to kind of, you know, claiming that the earth is flat in some circles because, uh, you know, the idea that a Irish agriculture sector that is so, so dependent on ruminants, which belch and fart and let out all this methane into the sky. And again, I come back to one of the earlier speakers points about how Irish people didn't seem to be aware of the impact of methane on the environment. I was surprised to hear that because one of the things that I, struck me during this whole COVID crisis was how, uh, how well Irish people were able to understand the information that was coming at them about how to deal with what was the reality on the ground in terms of the COVID-19 situation compared to a lot of other uh, countries around the world. So I think the Irish public are quite literate in terms of science and in terms of facts. So uh, I would be relatively optimistic that they, they get it um, as much as any other country in the world. And I think Irish farmers get it. Uh, what they are upset about is being labelled as environmental terrorists. And, you know, uh, once this is all over, we'll go back to having long conversations about things like just transitions which of course is totally being shoved to one side at the moment. But, you know, I do feel that uh, the, the idea and the theory of just transition 
isn't playing out for huge swathes of rural Ireland. So when you go down to the Midlands and you find that people are looking at their way of life in the peat industry being shut down at the end of this year, that is not a just transition. And they are rightly upset. And when I wrote about this, and I'm going to finish on this point, because I think this is where the other speakers, this comes back to the other speakers in this, uh, in this event. When I wrote about the anger that communities in the Midlands felt about being left behind, about that they weren't really being taken along in a just transition, that they were being steamrolled effectively, um, I got criticised on social media by environmentalists who went after me because I had talked about Bordnemona's efforts to, you know, harvest sap from birch trees, which were, quote unquote, growing like weeds on the bogs. And how dare I refer to birch trees growing like weeds and, you know, Dara, stop trying to commodify everything in nature. I just felt that was a classic example of environmentalists and academics entirely missing the point. This was a whole community is a whole community, a whole swathe of our population who feel like they're facing annihilation in climate change. And if we don't reach out and put our arms around them, they are going to turn to other leadership uh, for answers and for support. And I think that's where you get this really dangerous polarization in, in public and in opinion, where two sides cannot communicate, cannot get on the same side of the page. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel that that's where conversations like this, where people can come from very different perspectives and still, you know, find common ground. We've got to cherish those conversations any way we can. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Dara. Uh, I mean, that is exactly what Behind the Headlines is all about. So what a, a nice way of ending off um, uh, your presentation. We've had four absolutely fabulous contributions. Before we move to Q&A, and if I could just remind the audience to use the Q&A function. So if you're in the Zoom room, it's at the bottom of your screen. We'll also try and collect questions uh, from Facebook. I have a whole raft of them that have already flooded in. But before we do that, I'd like to go to the results of our poll. I don't know if somebody can put the poll result, result up for us. Uh, Francesca, do you have it there? Maybe not? Well, clearly not. Uh, I'm just curious to see, see what that was. Uh, all right, hopefully we'll bring the poll to you in a minute. Uh, let's get, oh, is it coming in? The results are there and they should be visible to the audience. And if you can't see what it's saying at the moment, yes for 66%, no for 22% and unsure for 12%. So, so Francesca, the sound is very poor. Would you mind repeating that? Yeah, we have yes, 66%, no. So read the question again. Has the COVID-19 pandemic made you rethink the response needed for climate change? Yes, for 66%, 22% said no, and 12% said unsure. Thank you, thank you very much, that's fascinating. Okay, let's go to our questions. I'm gonna start with one from Sylvia 
Thompson. Uh, and her question is, what lessons need to be learned right now about the spread of infectious diseases from wild animals to humans? Um, uh, there's a related one from Tony Brogan, who describes himself as an independent researcher. And his question is, do we need a Paris Agreement for infectious diseases? So sort of related there. Jane, can we start with you and then uh, uh, move to the rest of the panel? Would you mind tackling that one? Yeah, sure. I was kind of hoping you wouldn't come to me on that one. Um, not being an expert in infectious diseases and infectious disease spread. I mean, my understanding of, of um, this, this particular, the, the way that this disease uh, spread into humans in, in this case, it seems to be that, that, that it was through the wet market in Wuhan where uh, there was trade in uh, animals which where they have detected um, a virus most closely related to the one uh, that is infecting people at the moment so it's 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 it, i don't think the the transmission routes are fully understood um, but as i say i'm not i'm not an expert in this area um, it is i think from a from an ecological point of view it's it's not surprising that there has been this transmission you know the trade in wild animals um, and, and and animals taken from the wild they, they carry lots of different diseases uh, some of which we can contract some of which they just carry um, but don't show any any symptoms of um, you know as we trade in in wild animals and as we destroy wild animal habitat the chances of those diseases getting into the human population are increased. So whether we need a, a big convention on this, I, I don't think I, I'm the right person to, to comment on that. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's the bringing humanity and nature in, in, into this, this very um, uh, close proximity in, in a bad way. You know, I think humanity and nature, you know, we go hand in hand and most, most of the times that's, that's a good thing. Um, it, it's when it happens under these stressful circumstances that I think you get these these um, adverse reactions. But I'd be interested to hear if anyone else would I like don't know if anybody else would like to come in there. Catherine? Yes. So I would say, first of all, I completely agree with what Jane said. And I would also emphasize this, though, that the spread of infectious diseases is a symptom. It's not the cause. The cause is twofold. First of all, in terms of infectious diseases that spread from animal populations to human populations, as is believed to have happened with the coronavirus. The, the genome of coronavirus in bats is about 96% identical to that in humans. So they believe it was transmitted through an intermediary animal such as a pangolin to human populations. So with that, the issue is, is that our wildlife habitat is becoming increasingly constricted and pressed. As habitat destruction and fragmentation occurs, as climate change related droughts and shifts in, in uh, habitat occur, as wildlife trafficking occurs, more and more animal populations are being brought into contact with humans and that facilitates that process by which disease jumps from animal to human populations and is then spread by humans, which is the case happening now with the pandemic. There's a second type of infectious diseases though that are primarily related to climate change. And these are the diseases actually that Jane referred to earlier that are carried by what we call vectors, by ticks, by mosquitoes, by animals, whose range expands poleward as climate warms. So just to give you an example, I am from Ontario in Canada. I grew up running through the woods every summer and we had plenty of mosquitoes, but they didn't carry any diseases and we never saw a tick. 
On the other hand, my husband grew up in rural Virginia. He spent every summer running through the woods and being picked over by his mother by, for ticks every night because they had ticks everywhere and ticks carry Lyme disease now. But today, all through where I grew up, we have ticks, we have Lyme disease because as our winters warm, these carriers of disease are spreading northward. We see this happening for dengue, for chikungunya, for Zika, for things that are carried specifically by vectors, they're affected by climate change. So we need the Paris Agreement, absolutely. We also need a similar commitment to preserve the wild spaces on this planet because we are all part of this functioning ecosystem. And when one part of us suffers, we all suffer. We'll move on, unless uh, 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 Michael or Dara want to come in here. Maybe, do you want to come in? I have a question for you as well, Michael, but please start and then I'll, I'll ask you the question that's come up, please. Yeah, I, mean, I was just thinking a part of the, the, the answer to the question uh, lies in the area of the kind of cultural education, the cultural formation of, of people. Because what's very, very striking, for example, in children's literature, we find uh, animal creatures uh, appearing everywhere. They're kind of, you know, if, if you think, of uh, animated films, if you think of uh, the books that children uh, are reading, of kind of Disney characters, Winnie the Pooh and so on, um, the kind of the co-presence of human animals uh, is something that, that is everywhere. Uh, but then there's a strange kind of thing that happens, is that once people uh, move to you know, what's uh, referred to as kind of fiction for grown-ups, for adults and, and so on, is that the animals disappear, that that kind of, uh, of co-presence uh, with the, the other creatures uh, on the planet, with, with the non-humans, uh, suddenly kind of um, disappears to kind of a vanishing point. And the only thing that kind of rescues this is, you know, the, uh, the occasional documentary by David uh, Attenborough and, and, and others who are doing this kind of admirable work. Um, but it's this strange kind of, of, of void. And it seems to me that one of the consequences of that void is a lack of respect, uh, a lack of understanding uh, for um, the organisms we, we, we share the planet that lead to, to some of the consequences uh, that the other speakers have described. So there's a, there's a, it seems to me there's a kind of cultural com component to it as a part uh, alongside the duty of, of scientific and civic care. Michael, that brings us very nicely actually to this next question which is from Jennifer in Dublin. And it says, do you think the inheritances of arts and culture from the past have also played a part in contributing to contemporary biodiversity and climate crises? Uh, I, I think it, it has for, for good and for ill. Um, I think, for example, if we, if we look at the specific case of, of, of Ireland, uh, one of the ways in which uh, we had kind of cultural dysfunction, which I think led to uh, a lot of the difficulties that we had around uh, environmental awareness um, was, was language shift in, in, in the 19th century. I think one of the things that we tend not to talk enough about is the, the very quite dramatic shift from one language to, to another uh, that occurred in, in Ireland in the, in the 19th century, two thirds of the population basically kind of functioning uh, Gaelic speakers. By the time we get to the end of the 19th century, the, the census returned that about 2.7% uh, who were speakers of, 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 of Irish Gaelic. Uh, but one of the consequences of language shift and language change is that people lost the language uh, to describe the world in which they, they inhabited. The, the, the words that they had for insects, the words they had for flowers, the words they had for birds, the words they had for, for trees, all of that became a kind of a blank. Um, and it had to be kind of relearned uh, all over again. And I think one of the, the consequences of that is that it, it led to the development 
of what I call a culture of possession rather than a culture of dwelling. Um, that it became difficult to dwell knowingly in a place uh, that suddenly had become kind of blind to you. And Brian Freeland's play translations uh, talks a great deal about this. So this, I think, is the kind of um, the, the the difficult in, in inheritance culturally. Um, in terms of 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 a more positive in, inheritance, I think that, you know something that you find right from those early Irish lyrics that are described to Renaissance poetry in English uh, in, in, in Ireland, um, to a plethora uh, of, of tunes uh, in, the, in the Irish uh, musical tradition that, that talk about, describe, that try to, to, to mimic or imitate a nature and natural process in various ways. Um, that these were, were, were things bringing people uh, closer to to that uh, to that world, and that, that's why I suppose I see it as a resource. But unless it, it seems we, we we think knowingly and consciously uh, about the cultural frame to a lot of our our, our debates, I I think what we we, we can dis disappear kind of down kind of positivist manholes uh, where uh, the, the the larger picture sometimes we lost sight of. Mm, absolutely, it's funny that one of the same moment in my day, we're spending a lot of time on Zoom, is going for a walk uh, and these big long walks. And, and I was listening to translations today. Uh, it, it's such a phenomenal play. Anyway, um, our next question is from Stephen Flood, who joins us from the Centre for Energy, Climate and uh, Marine at University College Cork. Uh, and, and again, maybe one for Catherine, but others should feel free to join in. His question is, the Glasgow, the Glasgow UN Climate Summit has been rescheduled to October 2021. This gives countries time to work out their responses to COVID-19, hopefully shifting to low carbon economy rather than propping up the fossil fuel industry. I'm sure fossil fuel companies will be banging the drum that they will need billions in support to kickstart the global economy post COVID-19. Will the voices from the renewable sector, from scientists and the environmentalists with climate change activists uh, uh, be louder and more compelling? So it's quite a long question. Um, Catherine, why don't we start with you and then anybody else who'd like to, 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 to answer, please just signal to me, please. Absolutely. Well, I would say, Stephen, that it is not the future. It is already happening. You can look at the US kind of as the tip of the iceberg for fossil fuel involvement in politics. And when you look at the headlines here, you see that environmental protections have been rolled back, fuel economy standards have been rolled back, large bailouts are focusing on big industry. And I wouldn't be surprised to see this pattern around the world because when you go to Wikipedia, and you click on the richest companies in the world. Just look for a list of the richest companies in the world. At the top, we have Walmart, they're number one, but they plan to be 50% clean energy by 2025. At number 11, we have Apple, which is already 100% clean energy and they are decarbonizing their supply chain. And then in between Walmart and Apple, we have oil and gas, oil and gas, oil and gas, electricity, automotive, oil and gas, companies that made all of their wealth through digging up, processing, selling, or making things that burn fossil fuels. So when you ask, will our voices be louder? We'll certainly try, but our voices have very little money behind them compared to the money that's behind the fossil fuel industry. And so that's why in my mind, when we look at the recovery and the response to the pandemic long-term, the most urgent, the most critical, the most essential question is this, Will we, in our response, use this as an opportunity 
as has been done previously with the Marshall Plan, with the New Deal in the United States in the 1930s, will we use this as an opportunity to advance ourselves forward into the future? Or will this recovery, will stimulus packages be instead used to shore up the past? I don't know, Dara, Jane, Michael, do you want to say anything or, I've got a, or we can move on here? Please, Jane, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I just wanted to pick up on that point about the, that um, Catherine just made there is that these um, oil and gas and, and other companies have, a, have uh, money and therefore political power um, and, you know, so very much influence what's going on. And I think, you know, this is an opportunity for us to start to, you know, there's a, to think about what the, the thing about value and money in separate ways. And so there's a lot of um, environmentalists who don't like the idea of talking about monetizing the things that we get from nature um, because we should value nature because it's because of its inherent um, its inherent value. Um, but one way that we can make our voices stronger is by shining a light and illuminating the value of nature to um, every industry, not just the oil and gas industries that are digging up, burning and selling fossil fuels. Um, but if we can start to uh, shine a light on the unrecognized values of nature, then we could uh, have a new economy and have stronger voices and that's something that we've really been promoting through um, the, the whole natural capital debate and through the, the Irish Forum on Natural Capital and I know it's been controversial and I know lots of people don't like the idea of, of, of um, uh, monetizing nature but it's not all about monetizing it's about shining a light and showing the value of nature so that we have got those voices so that we have got that power to, to rebuild an economy in, in a different way. Thank you very much. Dara, I'm going to come to you, if I may, with the next two questions, because sure. they're, they're a little bit similar. So the first is from Toby, who just says he's in the United States. I'm not entirely sure where Toby is in the US. Uh, his question is, will the impact of the pandemic exacerbate the precarious lives of migrant uh, workers for agriculture even more in the future? So that's the first question. The second question is from Michelle Hallahan. Uh, her question is, seems like it would make uh, uh, so much sense to generate local and national markets for Irish food and products rather than relying, as we have been, on globalisation. Is this possible in the near future in Ireland? So Dara, I, I don't know if you'd be willing to take a crack at those two and sure. then again let the others join in, please. Yeah, well, I'll take the second one first, uh, which is an old chestnut, which is why don't, you know, why are Irish farmers pumping out milk and beef and shipping it all over the world? Um, well, the simple answer is because we have a natural competitive advantage in that regard. We can grow grass for fun. Uh, we can't grow rice. We can't grow maize, corn, the way they do in the US. We can't grow oranges. Our speciality is dairy and beef. Um, and there isn't a huge range of stuff that we can compete globally. I mean, I, I've been this soldier, right? I mean, I've tried growing lilies, sunflowers, gladiola, onions. Uh, you name it, I've pretty much given it a go. And it, onions is a classic example. Onions will grow no problem in an Irish climate. 
but we can't grow them and get that beautiful brown you know uh, stain free skin on an onion here that they can get for fun basically in dry climates like spain italy and argentina so the onion is a classic example of a crop that we can produce here but we can't compete we can't compete with cheaper imports and we live in a globalized world are we going to become less globalized um after covid or because of covid19 i don't think so i do not think so i mean if anything uh, the, the whole uh, crisis at the moment has proved how resilient the food chains have been. The shelves have not uh, tinned out. People went out and panicked, bought with a vengeance, and still the shelves were replenished, and there's been no shortage of uh, food for the vast majority out there. So um, I think that, you know, a, it's I think it's wishful thinking to think that we can uh, kind of back our way out of a globalized world where you know Irish farmers would be effectively protected so that I could indulge my passion in growing onions and not be worried about uh, cheaper imports undercutting me. So um, that's the reason that uh, the Irish uh, agriculture sector is so specialized. It's the reason that agriculture sectors all over the world are so specialized. Um, and it, it, it's about the money, you know, it's about the costs. So, you know, while it's nice to think of you know, we revert back to nice little cottage farms and they do a little bit of this and there's a few geese and it's a few pigs and there's a few sheep and there's a bit of this and a bit of that. And everyone has a little garden out the back and they're bringing their carrots down to the local farmer's market. It's not a realistic uh, scenario, I don't think, any time in the near future. The other question was about globalised staff. And again, yeah, migrant workers. I, yeah, I, I think that... Uh, you know, migrant workers are some of the most vulnerable uh, uh, workers in any economy. Um, and it doesn't, whether it's Ireland, America, anywhere else, India, they tend to be the bottom of the economic heap um, on minimum wages with minimal supports. And uh, so I think uh, this whole pandemic will create hardship uh for and 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 so the poorest in society will suffer most um i think that here in ireland uh migrant workers that well it's kind of the guys who were here already um are have no shortage of work ahead of them and the guys that were planning to get here are stuck where they are and they will be basically queuing up to uh, get on the next plane or flight that will allow them to come and work in Ireland or the UK or wherever they normally worked. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the, the ability for workers to travel around the world is a huge source of, a, a huge mechanism of transferring wealth around the world to some of the poorest in society and they're suffering right now. Mm, absolutely. Can I ask any of other panelists to come in on any of this? If, if you'd like to, please do. Please, Michael. Yeah, just, just briefly, really, uh, Jane. I think to some extent the, the, the problem is putting this or presenting this debate in either or terms. In other words, either we have kind of the, the globalized systems of food production that we have at present, 
or it's a kind of a, a radical utopian vision of the the small cottage you know with the uh, the vegetable plot and so on um you know i i think that there is there is a halfway house um here because i think one thing about irish agriculture if you looked historically um that really the, the kind of the shift towards kind of large-scale pastoral farming something that comes uh, after the end of the continental blockade uh, in the 1815 when it was cheaper to kind of import uh, grains uh, from continental Europe than to have them produced in Britain and Ireland. Uh, so this led to a, you know, a very decisive shift towards uh, pastoral uh, farming. Um, and that is you know, something that has endured you know, after the, the land transfers and so on. It, it, it mainly went to pastoral farmers rather than tillage farmers and so on. Um, but it seems to me that it's, it's quite possible to think about, uh, and this is where you need uh, things like proper training, government supports and so on, um, a, a diversified form uh, of agriculture and, and food production uh, where you know, particular kinds of, of tillage farming which have existed historically uh, on on the island uh, can can prevail because one of the things that's that, that is quite I mean, it's certainly true that there is you know the, Ricardo's notion of the law of comparative advantage that countries tend to specialize in those things that they uh, are, are are well able to to produce but having said that and within that context um, you, one of the things that you find in comparing an, an awful lot of national agricultures across Europe um, is that there is a degree of diversification in other food markets uh, that doesn't necessarily obtain in the, the, the Irish food market, even within, the, if you like, the, the kinds of crops that it's, it's possible for that agricultural system to produce. Um, so I think to some extent, um, presenting it as a strict either or um, may not be the best way to think about you know, sustainable uh, practices of the future. Jane, thank you, Michael, please. Jane, you're muted. Oh. Uh, Francesca, can you, can you unmute Jane? Yes, yeah, sorry, I've unmuted. Um, great, can you hear me? Yes. Um, I just wanted to come in on, on a couple of points there is, is one um, in terms of diversification and, you know, we, we talk about in the natural world, diversity gives us resilience. I think, you know, diversity in farming systems can also uh, provide some resilience as well. Um, and the second thing to pick up on there is in terms of cheaper food uh, being imported from elsewhere. And the reason that it's it's considered cheaper is because of the way that we value things at the moment. So that isn't taking into account any of the impacts that are happening elsewhere in terms of negative impacts of the way that food is produced on the environment or on society when, and, and, and the cost of, of transporting that food. We're not necessarily paying all of those costs, which is why that food appears cheaper. And this is why, you know, I keep saying that we need to we need to sort out our value system and the way that we we think about our economy um, so that we're actually valuing things properly. And then that might change the situation of, of uh, being you know, food, food being imported from the other side of the planet. I mean, how can that possibly be better than, than food that's grown locally? Thank you, Jane. Catherine, no? Um, I think this actually relates to um, the question that Paul had, if you don't mind me going there. Um, Paul identifies as a concerned citizen and said, well, how do we redirect, re redirect the recovery from how do we return to what we're doing before to how can we reorient our economy away from this? And what Jane pointed out is very key. We are not paying the real price for things. So we're not paying the real price for our food. We are definitely not paying the right price for our energy. Fossil fuels are subsidized to the tune of 6% of the world's GDP. 
In the United States, according to the International Monetary Fund, the indirect and direct subsidies, when you put them together to fossil fuels in the US, exceed $600 billion a year, which is more than the Pentagon's budget. But Paul's question also goes on to reflect a key misconception that we have. And he says, we know now that we can stop flying, driving cars, and shopping as a hobby, and we can make our own meals and our own entertainment. And I completely agree with that. And I think this is really a wonderful reminder to, uh, to all of us as to what is really important in life, what matters, what our priorities are. But here's the sad thing. If we look at the biggest reason why our carbon emissions have temporarily dropped, why our air quality has temporarily improved, it is industry. It's not personal choices. It is industrial production. And if you look at every individual in the world, even if we as individuals did everything we could to cut our carbon footprint, to live within our personal boundaries, that in and of itself as individuals would not be sufficient to fix either the ecological crises or the climate crises. And that's why we need system-wide change. In fact, I learned something recently that did not surprise me, but it horrified me. And that is the fact that although the, the concept of a personal carbon footprint was created by people who care about ecology and the environment, it was actually popularized a number of decades ago by a very well-funded and expensive ad campaign by British Petroleum. The idea that we as individuals are somehow the culprits. It's the farmers who are doing this. You know, as, as Dara said, it's, you know, it's those people who do this, those people who do that. We find it convenient to point the fingers when in reality, 90 corporations are responsible for two thirds of greenhouse gas emissions since the dawn of the industrial era. We need system-wide change. And because of that, I truly believe that one of the most important things that each of us as individuals can do, no matter who we are, is what we're doing right now. And that is talking about it, understanding the risks, the choices and the impacts as well as the solutions, and then advocating for change at every level, because only by doing so will we actually see the long-term change that we need. Thank you, Catherine. And it brings me to three questions that are very similar, but I want to read them out. So the first is from Tom Nelson, who describes himself as an interested citizen, anxious to survive, but more importantly for my grandchildren to survive and thrive. His question is, to what extent are policymakers and political leaders contemplating the changes needed as suggested by your panel? So in other words, the policymakers, uh, uh, are they actually uh, really thinking about the changes? Then there are two other questions I'd like uh, uh, to ask you. One from Marcus Beresford. Uh, do the panelists think it is realistic that policymakers will prioritize nature, climate change without it being commodified? And then Lorna uh, Hutchin has a, another related question. Climate strikes and marches illustrate there is public will to change. Academics point to the science that backs them, but government policies would uh, uh, be seen as unpopular. How can the gap be bridged? So again, it's how it's the translating of all of this into uh, policies that make a difference. Again, I don't know who would like, I'd, I'd love to hear from everybody on this one. If you've got anything uh, to say at all, it would be, I think, very, very uh, helpful. Who'd like to start? Dara, do you want to start? Sure, sure. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's already been uh, touched on by other members of the panel here. The fact that uh, 
biodiversity is key and it is a key way of making uh you know our society and our our environments and our systems uh more sustainable and i think that uh i'll just use one example to maybe illustrate that you know we don't actually need to entirely break down the current system uh, and we can still make improvements so for example uh, on the farm here we have a dairy herd and just in the last uh, two years we started planting multi-species swords so uh, the biggest crop in Ireland is grass and the vast vast majority of it is a monoculture uh, made up of perennial ryegrass and perennial ryegrass is great for farmers because it just chucks out tons of grass in response to one thing nitrogen so it, it's a really easy thing to manage you sow the seed you apply nitrogen and it just generates a lot of feed for for ruminants but it's entirely dependent on chemical nitrogen um, there and it's funny Irish farmers turned their back on older systems because this new system using perennial ryegrass and nitrogen was easy and it was cheap and it was profitable. But now that we know what we know, i.e. that, you know, chucking out nitrogen like it's going out of fashion isn't necessarily a good thing. In fact, it's most definitely a bad thing. We now know that it's worth our while putting in the extra effort to encourage things like clover, which fixes nitrogen into the ground. Uh, in our swords. So here at home, not only have we included clover, but we've included a six-way mix of chicory, plantain, yarrow, um, other types of grasses. And what we're doing, what we're seeing is a whole series of benefits. So number one, it reduces the nitrogen requirement on the crop. Number two, it makes it more drought resilient uh, because you've got uh, plants that react differently in drought situations. They've got a, a deeper rooting profile in the ground, so they're sucking moisture and minerals from a, a wider uh, profile in the ground. And because they're taking minerals out of a wider profile in the ground, it's actually more nutritious for the animals. And you kind of go, hang on a second, did farmers not know about this 20 years ago? What the hell? Why has it taken until now? for you know progressive farmers commercial farmers to wire into this and the fact is that the it was felt i come back to that point that it was easier just to put in perennial ryegrass and stick on nitrogen and it was but it has these hidden costs that the other speakers have referred to and those hidden costs are becoming more transparent so i just use that as one example of how irish agriculture may not need to turn its back on ruminants uh, in order to become a more carbon neutral type system and still be able to play to its trump cards. Um, and, you know, uh, we, the, a lot of the speakers have talked about, you know, we still need more diversity within Irish agriculture. I think there will be still, like, we still have grain farmers, even though I've talked all about ruminant uh, farming, we still have a lot of grain produced in this country. And I think, you know, with greater awareness about the impact of cutting down uh, rainforests in South America to grow soya, to produce protein that we all then lorry into animals on the other side of the planet, as that awareness in the public grows, then farmers like me are now experimenting with growing protein crops on the home farm to feed 
turkeys or poultry or ruminants or whatever else. So farmers are experimenting. It doesn't happen overnight. This isn't a switch and there is no silver bullet and it's not just going to happen. And bear in mind, it is effectively only in the very short, uh, recent times that farmers have been basically informed, lads, you know what you're doing? This is having serious consequences. It's taken a few years for all that to percolate in, but it's also taken a few years for the research to catch up and come up with alternatives. And farmers are more than willing to put their arms around alternatives. Actually, on that note, again, Jane, Catherine, Michael, do you want to come in here as well? Yeah, I just want to make a point really about the, uh, the, the power of, of stories. I mean, one of the things that strikes me in terms of, of political change and, uh, you know, and Doris made the point earlier about uh, how, despite all the things that, that Donald Trump uh, does and says about the, the, that his ratings still remain very, very high. But one of the reasons that they remain high is that Trump is a genius for telling simple stories, simple stories that, that seem to make uh, sense, even if they're contradicted by all kinds of scientific evidence. It doesn't really matter because the force of the story is such, the kind of rhetorical hold of the story is, is, is so strong. And I think maybe one of the weaknesses of uh, the environmental movement has been um, a, a very great concern, despite what its opponents say, uh, with, with evidence, with producing evidence-based uh, arguments, with showing that particular arguments before about fossil fuels industry are completely fallacious. Um, but one of the consequences of that, it seems to me, is that we haven't concentrated enough uh, on the power of counter-myth, on the power of counter-story. Uh, one of the things, for example, that struck me uh, about the, the bushfires in Australia um, was these terrible, terrible things were happening, you know, just um, hundreds of thousands of hectares of bush were being destroyed. But it's when the koala bears come center stage that all of a sudden you get this kind of global uh, resonance. So anytime there's a kind of vulnerable uh, fauna, and particularly, you know, it helps if they're kind of, you know, they're cute, cuddly, etc. Um, that all, this this kind of mobilizes global attention. But what, what I think that indicates, however, is um, the power of uh, image, uh, the power of story, and this is, you know, this is old as, as political establishments themselves, is the power of, of rhetoric. Um, and the people who are hell-bent on, on destroying the planet uh, are supremely good uh, at using particular forms of rhetoric. Whether it's the high-end rhetoric that's paid for uh, by British Petroleum, uh, or the kind of low-end populist rhetoric that's employed uh, by the Brazilian and uh, uh, US leaders. So it's, 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 it seems to me that we need to, to go back and kind of school ourselves in the rhetorical arts of the ancients uh, as one way of, of dealing with the current crisis. Well, I was going to say, you can tell you're a humanist, uh, Michael. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's, but, it, but you're absolutely so right. I love it. Uh, uh, Catherine and then Jane. Well, I was going to say the same thing too. This oh, there you is, go. <laughs> this, this shows us exactly why we need everyone when it comes to this issue. Because stories are what actually motivate us to change. That is why we need people who understand words, who understand stories, who understand the myths that run through our culture that we respond to, sometimes consciously, sometimes just subconsciously or instinctively. If anybody's interested in learning more about the specific stories that are and have been told and the people who are crafting these stories when it comes to climate change, there's a wonderful resource called Merchants of Doubt. In other words, people who deal in doubt. It is a very compelling documentary. It is an excellent book. 
and it unpacks these stories. It sort of uh, draws aside the curtain and shows us what's behind it. And Michael is absolutely right. It is nothing to do with physical science. It is nothing to do with natural or life sciences. It has everything to do with our psychology, our stories, what makes us human, our culture. Um, that's what motivates us to act or keeps us from acting. Equally important. Thank you, Jane. And yeah, just to, to build on that, I think, you know, once we get the, 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 the stories and, and uh, the, the, the will amongst people, then that's when it brings the, the political change. And I think one of the, going back to the, the original questions was, you know, how will, um, you know, the public is willing to change? How, how, you know, how will government policy respond? And I think one of the problems has been that government policy has been very siloed. Um, and, you know, the, the, the different departments are responsible responsible for little different bits of legislation it doesn't always join up it doesn't always uh, you know sometimes it contradicts each other and you, this issue of, of um, climate change biodiversity loss of, of the importance of nature to people um, has become lost uh, through um, a series of, of different uh, government agencies and, and, and departments whereas it, it needs to be front and center to, to everything that, that we're doing at a policy level um, and I think that's that's you know getting getting people on board helps to bring that to the front and center of, of, of the, the policymakers. Are you hopeful Jane that our government is listening? I'm going to ask you the same question Catherine from a, a, a North American perspective. I, I, I hope so. I think, you know, we've seen over the last 12 months a huge, huge increase in, as, as, as one of the, the, the people who asked a question there, sorry, I can't remember who it was, said, you know, the, the climate strikes, the, the public global assessment last year, uh, you know, huge, huge increase in people's awareness and understanding about biodiversity loss. Uh, and, and more about the, the climate crisis. So I think people are much more aware. We've seen increases in, in um, support for uh, green politics. Um, I'm, I'm hoping our leaders are listening. Yeah, obviously we all are. What about you, Catherine? How hopeful are you on the other side of the pond? Uh, I certainly look for hope. I feel like hope is not gonna go going to find us. We have to go out and look for it. And when we do go out and look for it, we do find hope. So for example, in my home country of Canada, we had an election this past October, and it was really a referendum on carbon pricing. We have had four provinces that had a price on carbon for a number of years. The Liberal Party who was in power had introduced a new price on carbon, and then there was an election. They won the election, which means there is overwhelming support for positive climate action across the country, despite the fact that a large amount of our economy in Canada depends on the oil and gas industry. Now, in the United States, again, the headlines are all about Trump and the oil and gas companies. But when you look below the federal government headlines, there is hope here, too. So just as an example, there's a movement called We Are Still In, which refers to the Paris Agreement. The number of states, cities, businesses, organizations, universities, tribal nations that have signed on to the we are still in agreement amount to nearly 50% of the United States emissions. When we look at how cities and states and businesses from Microsoft to Apple to cities right here in Texas where I live are preparing for a changing climate, there is hope. Our uh, Dallas, is already carbon neutral. They have the first carbon neutral airport in North America. 
Houston is implementing a climate action plan that was delayed by the pandemic. It was supposed to be released two weeks ago, but it will now be released in April. There is hope. We just have to go out and look for it. And when we find it, we have to share it. Because without hope, we will be a self-fulfilling prophecy of despair. In a way, I'd love to end on that note because it's such a positive one. But as is our practice, when we wrap these conversations up, I do go back to each panelist and say, if you have one message you would like our audience to go home with tonight, obviously they're in their own homes, but as they switch off uh, and go out and look at the uh, uh, full moon, what is that one message you want them to take away? And we don't have very much time. I'm gonna start with you, Dara. Um, I will do it in reverse order this time. One key message for our audience tonight, what would it be? Jeepers, okay, no pressure. Um, I suppose it would be that, um, have a keep the faith a little bit um because i think that uh you know the the society and industry whether it's agriculture or otherwise is aware the message is getting through on the impact that it or we are having and you know if anything <laughs> i think one of the most arresting images from the covid 19 crisis are those satellite images which show you know the change in the emissions between before and after and it, it's like you know when those images first emerged of planet earth from outer space it was a very arresting image it was one that really was seared in the the minds and the cultural psyche of people and i, I think that that image was was on every paper newspaper or worth uh it's all just because we're out of time so oh keep sorry the so we could hope keep the faith jane very quickly what would you be Quickly, uh, nature keeps us healthy. We're part of nature, uh, so we need to value and protect nature. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Michael? Uh, my message would be take your thinking outdoors. Uh, don't think indoors all the time. It's strange advice in COVID times, uh, but go outdoors, go out to your backyard, your backyard, and just count up all the non-human organisms in that backyard, that back garden, and think about how you relate to it. Thank you. Last but not least, Catherine. If you care about issues like biodiversity loss and ecosystem destruction, deforestation and climate change, we often think that we have to be a certain type of person. Somebody who is already an environmentalist, somebody who already lives in an environmentally friendly way. But what this pandemic has brought home is that we are all part of this interconnected system. And to care about biodiversity, to care about the integrity of our ecosystems, to care about our planetary boundaries and the limits on the resources we can use, and last but not least, to care about climate change, the great threat multiplier, we only have to be one thing. And that one thing is a human living on planet Earth, and every single one of us is that one thing. Well, again, just such, I mean, the insights we've had tonight, and I'm so sorry, we you know, there are many, many, many other questions. You can see them coming up on the screen. Before we thank everybody, though, I do want to make a few announcements. Um, first thing is our next Behind the Headlines will take place on the topic 
democracy in a time of pandemic because lots of very scary things are happening with our democracy not just here in Ireland but around the world and obviously we'll put the details on our website please sign up to uh, our weekly newsletter if you're not already uh, uh, receiving it because it'll also give you access to our weekly blog humanities and other reflections on the uh, coronavirus pandemic this week our public policy fellow uh, Rory Montgomery discusses the EU and the pandemic but there's been a whole series of wonderful blogs there but Rory's is just an absolute cracker um, I'd like to invite you all to join me on Thursday the 9th of April at 1.15 for a conversation with the artist Rita Duffy again she is just a phenomena and the work that Rita has been producing in this moment of crisis is really just tremendous and she'll talk about art and creativity and, and crisis. So please, that's 1.15 uh, on the 9th. We put the link up through our website. Um, we podcast all of these conversations. So to the podcast from tonight's uh, 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 Behind the Headlines will be available. And you can listen back to the uh, Plagues and Pandemics one from uh, uh, nearly a fortnight ago. So without further ado, I'm going to thank my amazing team, uh, uh, Aoife, Francesca, Katrina, Giovanna, everybody uh, in the Trinity Longroom Hub who makes these events run so smoothly. I want to thank you, our audience. It's not the same as being in the room together, but actually there is a tremendous energy as well. So thank you uh, for joining us this evening. Um, uh, and literally uh, the, the night has fallen, uh, uh, as you can see in the background here. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you with us. But above all, I want to thank our speakers. I mean, you guys have just been phenomenal uh, and you have made this just the most inspiring conversation. It's all about conversation. It's all about storytelling. And the more of this we can do, so much the better. So on everybody's behalf, I'd like to give you a huge round of applause. So well done, everybody. So good night and take care, everyone. Bye. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.